Welcome to Forever White Belt. I'm your host, Adolfo Ferranda. Today on the show, I have Sven Groten. I feel more and more like one of those record store nerds who just has to find the diamond in the rough, the one who carefully curates his collection. From time to time, you can find these in jiu-jitsu as well. And I feel I found one in Sven Groten. He's a fantastic jiu-jitsu thinker and teacher. I feel he brings tremendous insight and value to the community with his free videos. You can find them on YouTube. I highly suggest you check them out. Sven is also a European no-gi competitor and co-owner of the Game Theory Academy in Cologne, Germany. He's a Luther Livre black belt and a BJJ brown belt. I'll leave that BJJ color story to Sven in the conversation. He's a regular instructor on the BJJ Globetrotter circuit and is a professional special needs teacher. Okay, some housekeeping notes. In the interview, we refer to BJJ Globetrotters quite a bit and I've realized that some of you have no idea what it is. They refer to themselves as, quote, a worldwide community of travelers against jiu-jitsu politics, unquote. I would say they're best known for putting on amazing jiu-jitsu camps all over the world. In fact, I'm excited to attend my very first one in Arizona soon. More reports on that later. Just a reminder to please give us a five-star review on iTunes, or just share this podcast with a friend. It really helps us out. And check out our Forever White Belt merchandise at teespring.com forward slash forever dash white dash belt. And leave us a message at anchor.fm forward slash forever white belt. Also like our Facebook page to get all the latest news at Forever White Belt. And just check us out on all the socials by searching Forever White Belt. You will find us. And with that, I give you Sven Groten. I'm Sven Groten from Cologne, Germany. Thanks for having me. So happy to have you. As we were previously talking about, I discovered you via the Globetrotters videos, and I saw that you just have these slew of videos on there. And as I fell down into the Sven rabbit hole, I discovered what an effective teacher and communicator you are, and just all the topics you cover. It was just crazy. And then I went down and, and viewed a lot of your competitions, and that was also very interesting. We'll get into a lot of that too. But Sven, can you give us a brief bio background of who you are? Who is Sven? <laughs> oh my God. Um, my, my bad bio and background is kind of weird and, and all over the place. So um, I've been doing martial arts ever since I was six years old and started with judo. Basically, I, I really sucked at football, soccer. That wasn't my thing. And I'm pretty much from the countryside. So there was wrestling and judo left. Back The gyms were next to each other. And as a six-year-old, I, I thought the gi was way cooler than the singlet. So I went for judo. Yeah, then on and off with martial arts, competed in judo as a child. And basically, when I moved to Cologne to study, I just kind of randomly tumbled into uh, a martial arts and Thai boxing and grappling gym. I had my first contact with, it's kind of a sister martial art to jiu-jitsu with Luta Livre. The thing is that uh, Luta Livre was the prior grappling martial art in, in Germany. It has been here earlier and has been here way bigger than jiu-jitsu than, yeah, jiu has, which is kind of weird because a lot of people outside of Germany have never heard of Luta Livre. And came up through this, switch teams uh, every now and then, fought MMA. Um, yeah, and for some time now, I've only been doing jiu-jitsu, stopped doing MMA as a competitor, and uh, came on to Globetrotters, and now even have my own academy together with a handful of friends. Let's talk about, it's game theory, right? Is, is I believe is the name of your academy. Is, is that correct? Yeah, correct. Uh, our own school is Game Theory Jiu-Jitsu in Cologne. And I'm also for way longer already the grappling coach for Cage MMA in Cologne. And maybe that's something on the side too. I have a real life job still. I mean, Jiu-Jitsu feels more like my real life and I'm, I'm pretending to be a special education teacher during the day. It's, yeah, so um... it's Game Theory Jiu-Jitsu and Cage MMA. What a great sort of well-rounded skill set you get from all of that. But let, let's talk about Game Theory a little bit. Um, I love the name. How did you guys get that name? <laughs> uh, I, I had the, um, the idea, of course, of having my own school for a while, years before game theory or even the people I do it with were in consideration for me. And it's the only time in my life ever that I had that kind of thought you get just before falling asleep. And I actually got up and wrote it down. And I know that for some people, that is something they do a lot. They even have a notebook next to their bed. I literally never did that. The only thing I ever did that with was the name game theory jiu-jitsu and it's stuck there for a couple of years before we even started why game theory though what is it with that term 
I just think it's very appropriate. I mean, in the terms of of game theory as a, a field of uh, mathematics, jiu-jitsu actually is a game. It's often, or, or it has even been described as a, as a zero-sum game. And it's basically the science of ideal decision-making, trading off and, and making gain. And I think that's a lot of what we do in jiu-jitsu. So it kind of resonates with people who know what game theory actually means. But even if you've never heard of it, it kind of makes sense because the theory part kind of speaks to the approach we take to jiu-jitsu being very technical about it and being bad, the principles behind it. And it, it's obviously a game even to the uninitiated. So it kind of breaches between casual and knowledgeable. And it also speaks to the nerdier side of people and to the playful competitive side. So it's I, I, I really, I'm convinced it's the absolutely perfect name for what we do. It is. It is. It's such a cool name. You mentioned you lived in Cologne, or you live in Cologne, Germany. Can you talk about the evolution of jiu-jitsu in Germany in general and your area and how that has evolved? Traditionally, Cologne has been kind of the taking off point of German grappling because uh, I was talking about how Luta Livre was the first grappling art in Germany. And it actually kind of landed in Cologne way back in the in the 90s. Some guy from Brazil who was at the time already, I think, Lucha Livre Black Belt, came to Cologne as a musician. And that was right around the first UFCs. And people made the connection. They saw the first UFCs on tape. And they heard that this music guy from Brazil does something like that Gracie person. And they kind of harassed him into teaching. He didn't want to. He was here to be a professional musician. They kind of harassed him into teaching them. And it was like a small group of people that actually started here that are partly still around today. And from there, it kind of branched off. One of them was just very, very good at marketing and building a franchise and affiliation. He helped to spread a lot. And later then, jiu-jitsu kind of dribbled over to Germany too. Kind of the problem with that was historically that because Luta Livre is the way smaller martial art, it has never been as big as jiu-jitsu has. There's less people in it. So there's also kind of less computing power in it. There's less minds involved in that world. And they have been very separate historically because of historical feuds and whatever. And them only doing no gi, uh, never having a gi in, in Luta Livre. So it has traditionally not been as just plain as good as jiu-jitsu has been. So Germany was kind of a developing country for, for grappling, even compared to the rest of Europe. So I think Europe, for the most part, has been behind the US, for example, just because it arrived here later. And Germany has even been like behind the Netherlands and Belgium. I talked to a lot of people. I'm pretty connected with people in Europe. And I've talked to people from Belgium and, and the Netherlands. And historically, it was if... German grapplers kind of made it over the borders to competitions. Usually the Belgians, Dutch, French had to kick us out in, in the first rounds just to, mm. to figure it out amongst themselves. But for a while now, and I'm kind of proud to be at least part of that, German grappling is catching up. That's really interesting because obviously here in America, we're, a lot of us are naive to the hierarchy of European jiu-jitsu and how that historically has stacked. So that's fascinating insights that you're providing us. What did your first day of jiu-jitsu look like? Well, the first day of actual jiu-jitsu or Luta Livre back then, of course, was Nogi. And again, I, I had my judo background mm. and uh, there, there is some self-defense jiu-jitsu in Germany that's very specific. It has nothing to do with Brazilian jiu-jitsu. So I did a, lot of, a bit of self-defense stuff before. And I remember coming to my, I don't remember the first actual grappling class. I remember the moments after in the locker room. I, I stood there, soaked in sweat, got beat up terribly. And uh, I remember that thought of, okay, this is what I'm going to be doing for the rest of my life. And it's, it's still true today. I just find more joy in jiu-jitsu every month I do it. Have you always been in like a no-gi player then? Or you, I mean, judo, you played gi, right? But have you played any yeah. jiu-jitsu in the gi? Or it seems like no-gi is sort of your mainstay, correct? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, of course, judo wasn't a gi. I'm, I'm not entirely incompetent in a gi. I just don't enjoy it nearly as much as no gi. And every now and then I put on a gi just for laughs and roll with people. Or if you have good people in the gym that want to roll with me in a gi, I, I will do that. But I don't. Re I really don't care that much about it. Um, I think the divide is getting bigger anyways. And we, we have a no gi focus. Can you talk about your competitive evolution and uh, your experience in, in competing? 
Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, mostly on, on the European German scene. Funny thing is, all the way through, I think, Purple Belts, that was when the big leglock hype came. Also, thanks to one of my training partners and now coaches also and co-owners at Game Theory, we were pretty up-to-date or as up-to-date as you could possibly get at that point with, with the leglock game. So all the way through Purple, I just inside, inside helo people all the time. Um, at least in competition, because in, in the gym, I would nearly not hit it as much. So on competitions, I was kind of a leglock guy, but actually I'm not. I've never been that much of a leglock guy. And the last couple of years have been kind of all about integration of grappling and jiu-jitsu. So I don't make a difference. I think there is no difference between wrestling and jiu-jitsu. That's maybe where the positional aspects of my game come from. I literally think it's the exact same thing. I don't think there's a gap in between them. I don't think grappling stops at a point and jiu-jitsu starts and the other way around. And uh, probably that's also about the time when game theory started. And I was out of the last gym I was training at prior to that. And it was just all us amongst ourselves and no one even like, pointing two directions. Just in the natural evolution we kind of took us to team and me without having anyone interfere with what i do but it's, it's it's hard to pinpoint that and probably that's at least part of it in 2017 it looks like you were competing against a french gentleman and you lost mm. that one to points and then i look at these 2019 yeah, guy from belgium and then in 2019 you win by these as you mentioned i believe heel hook submission submission there's a, there's a couple heel hooks i believe I'm not sure in 2017 at that point, you're very concerned with points. Are you thinking of those things a lot in competition? It seems like you, at that point, you're, I don't know, sub-orientated. I'm not sure. I think the natural game I play is very adaptable to a point setting. I In training, I really don't think about it. And I don't teach things according to points too. What I mean is, I think if you do jiu-jitsu right, the points kind of come naturally. And if you put a bit of focus on the competition setting and just remind yourself of, if we both sit and I get up, I get points for whatever reason, because that qualifies as a sweep. That's easy to just have in my mind and be a bit more adapted to competition. But in general, I think if you do jiu-jitsu right, points are kind of a side product of that. Or things like you get someone's back and the competition rules say you have to put in regular hooks and not a high hook or a body triangle to get your points for it. It's easy to just do that and go back to playing the high hook or the body triangle. And also a lot of this for me probably is just competition experience. I can switch to a competitive competition game mindset where I'm way more aware of that and play to points a bit more, which sometimes even leads to me rolling in competition in a way that I wouldn't enjoy to do just in the gym because I'm just being more concerned with I did what I have to do to win and it's just X amounts of seconds left. So I'm not diving for things like crazy anymore, but still I'm, I'm kind of pissed off of myself if I don't submit someone. Well, we have to remember too that there's all different types of competitions too. There's not only points competition. Yeah. You know, we have sub-only combat and all kinds of stuff. And I think that your game really connects with those quite well. I believe it's not my, it's absolutely not, not my sentence. I like Danner has said that all the time. Jiu-Jitsu is control that leads to submission or somewhere along those lines. And I'm really convinced of that. Control doesn't always mean it's the point awarded control positions that points Jiu-Jitsu kind of enforces. I believe, for example, a lot of in rights that are below the hip that don't give you any points, but it's still control. And I want to submit someone in the end. Sometimes like, I'm forced to play to the competition setting. And if you put up points for a certain position, you have to put up qualifiers to when that exact position is reached. And you kind of have to cater to that. I do it and go back to the way I actually like to control people just to collect points along the way. And it's just about being a bit aware of what exactly the setting and the rule set is. It shouldn't inhibit your jiu-jitsu too much. How do you prepare for tournaments? And then additionally, do you have a strategy or strategies going into tournaments? I don't train more than I regularly do. I'm on the mat every day anyways. Of course, I do rounds in which I think of the specific rule set. So I'm more aware of points. I'm collecting points and rolling. Usually for competitions, I do even more bad positions and very late escapes than I regularly do. So I kind of like the idea, even if things go terribly wrong, I want to be as hard to finish as possible. That kind of also makes you more brave and that makes me take bigger risks if I need to. 
And also it kind of depends on the, the level of the competition. Like for most competitions, I just stick with my regular training and tweak it a little bit because I like to have my general non-preparation training just be for competitive jiu-jitsu. We all train, even the hobbyists in the gym that never compete, we do training like we do for a competitive setting. And if you compete or not, it's, it's up to you. But I think you can just train everyone in the room like that. And I do that too. Tactically, I uh, don't believe in getting into an open competition too much with a game plan because most of the time or oftentimes you don't exactly know who, who your opponents are going to be. What I practice a lot and what I put a lot of effort into is the mental preparation for tournaments or for competitive settings. So I kind of, I kind of have my routines and uh, I, I know what to expect in a competition day and, and how this will go down for me. And I, that's something that I think is very important. And it, it for sure was very important for me. Can we expand on that that mental preparation? Sure. It's always really interesting with each individual. They have different philosophies and you, they, they even consider the psychology of it. Can you talk about your mental preparation? Yeah, it's, it's kind of my like, idiot's guide to sports psychology. <laughs> One thing, for example, is I actively chose to just accept the things that I can change. So one of the things of competition is you will warm up three times and in the end still go on the mat for your first match and be cold because timing is off and the organization of the event is all over the place. So I just anticipate that I probably warm up three times and still compete cold. That's kind of what I expect and accept. Mm -hmm. And anything that's better than that is a win for me. A lot of people go into competition, they expect to be warmed up and prepared and know like 50 minutes ahead of time when their match is going to be. And they are surprised and thrown off if all of a sudden they, they are basically sitting in the bleachers and it's, go, you have to compete. I expect that to happen. I expect to basically take a nap and someone kicking me, like you have to run to your mat or they are going to disqualify you. So I anticipate that and anything more that I get, great, thank you. I expect the refs to be totally incompetent and I'm very happy if I if I get a ref that knows what he does. Also, okay, the waiting and warming up thing is a big thing. Also, I kind of have my routines for when I'm actually at the mat and I, maybe I already had my first match and I'm waiting for the next one. And what do I do in the seconds before I get called onto the mat? I just do basically do the same stuff all the time, even if it's only in my mind, just so my mind doesn't wander off and I just have my routine that funnels me into competition. And um, I've talked about that before, I think at some Globetrotter camp, I even have my final thought before it's go time, before it's about slap, bump and go. I even have my final thought like formulated and it's always the same. It's always kind of the same sentence that I think before competing. Things like that really help me. It's interesting. It's a bit of a dichotomy because you... At one point, you're, you've got very low expectations you're, and you're ready for those low expectations in terms of like yes. how things can go awry. It, it allows you to be adaptable, very adaptable. But at the same point, you have these these uh, sort of touchstones that are sort of firmly in place in terms of like what you're thinking right before you slap and bump. That's fascinating. It's kind of about the aspects that I can control and that I can't control. I cannot control how disorganized the tournament may be, and I cannot control if I get a competent ref or not. But... I can control the, the final thoughts in my mind. And that, that moment of you're about to be called to the mat, you're literally standing on the, on the edge of the mat. From there on, it's, it's always the same. And that's something I can't control. So I, I exert a huge amount of control over the things I can. And I just wave off things that I cannot control. That's kind of the demarcation line for me. And it triggers that memory of one of the, your 2017 competitions where you got really positioned on someone, you're pushing someone, you guys are sliding, and then suddenly you're sliding off the mat, right? And I'm like thinking to myself, why don't these guys have larger mats? What's happening here? <laughs> so you're yeah. constantly being resetted to a position maybe you weren't exactly in, right? That's not as advantageous. Yeah, it's also something I actively practice. Uh, we have a competition class, and in those, I, I actively practice bad restarts. Also something I anticipate, I anticipate the ref to be incompetent and not know what position I'm in. I anticipate my opponent trying to gain something from the restart, as I would too. So I, I actively practice to get a better restart for me, because usually if we both do that, we kind of end up in, in even. Also, I again, something I anticipate, I anticipate things like that to happen. And with that, I prepare myself for not getting in an argument with anyone, but just basically quietly refusing to engage. Like If, mm -hmm. if I see my opponent getting in a way advantageous position for him, I'm not going to be forced into a bad restart. I just basically take a step back and tell the ref, that's not where you were. That's not how I'm going to restart. Mm. And usually 
then something changes. But also, I'm prepared for the ref just telling me, yeah, you you take it or you're you're out. You take it or you you're disqualified. I'm just stating my point quietly, and usually it helps. There's a lot of things like that. Also, like for a while, I had problems with that was my inside helix phase. I had problems with people disengaging and basically running away from my guard. Oh yeah. So the solution I came up with for myself, and despite from technical solutions like getting up and chasing them showing them that I would get up and they have to take put me down again or prevent me from getting up to my to my knees I will scoot towards them and do the what's up gesture to the ref or I would mm. scoot and look at the ref or I would point at the person and look at the ref mm. just to to I, I think subtle communication there yeah I'm used to coaching the ref too also when I'm actively coaching people I'm coaching the refs too Good so point. that's all like the the aspects that you can easily cover and you can practice that even in, when you do competition simulations in the gym practice coaching the ref tell them okay here come the points this is side control you're about to get your points it helps so i want to talk to you about globetrotters and your relationship with them if, if you people don't know sven's got some incredible content on the Globetrotters website, or just go to YouTube and type in Globetrotters Sven, and you will see you got Clawride video, you have a uh, controlling dynamics, which I particularly love that video, by the way. I keep watching it over and over. It's it's fascinating. <laughs> and we'll get back to that. Uh, you got arm drags video, you have guillotines videos, you have leg locks and arm bar videos. I mean, quite a bit of content. Can you tell me how the relationship with the Globetrotters even came about and how that's evolved? Yeah, it started, I think it was in, it was either in 2017 or 16, just teammates of mine, they were at those Globetrotter camps and someone, one person in the group got sick and I just took a spot randomly because I, I was free and I just took it. I went to my first Globetrotters camp in Belgium and uh, then did a couple of more as a participant. And I think I was a brown belt by the time. And at some point I asked Christian Graugaard, the, the head of Globetrotters, what it takes to be or what I would have to do to be an instructor with the Globetrotters. And he said, yeah, I have so many requests. You should be a black belt. And uh, I think it was about four months after that camp, I got my black belt and sent the photo to Christian and said, yeah, no excuse anymore. That way I was in as an instructor. I like your direct style of communication, right? Let's let's just put it like that. It's kind of, and, and maybe this is like an American thing where we're feeling shame or not worthy, or, you know, to go up to Globetrotters and, and you're not even a black belt yet, right? To even think that you're worthy of teaching, even though you are, it takes some, some gumption, right? To do that. Is this a, <laughs> a German thing? Is this a Sven thing? What is this? I don't think it's a German thing because because I, I pissed off a lot of other Germans with that too. Ah, I think okay. it's, a, it's a particular Sven thing. I'm not a person with a small ego. It doesn't take a lot to ask. So I'd rather ask forgiveness if I'm too far ahead, maybe, than not ask and miss out on opportunities. And also, I, I knew a couple of the instructors. I talked to a couple of the instructors. And usually for what I did and what I said or when they wrote with me, I got at least decent enough feedback to get the idea of, yep, let's just ask what it takes to to do this too. And I didn't expect to, to be told, yeah, you're instantly in. I actually wanted to know what I had to do to get in as an instructor. But I, I expected something like, yeah, maybe send us a video of you teaching whatever, or just uh, teach someone anything on a sideline and we'll evaluate that or you name it, whatever else. Or maybe if you're at a camp and as a participant, and for some reason, an instructor has to drop out, just take one of his classes and we'll see how that goes. I, I didn't expect to be invited with all the praises. So I just asked, okay, what what can I do? What do I have to do to one day be in here too? You're creating opportunities, which is amazing. You know, I, I envy that trade in individuals. I don't have the expectation that anyone or anything or the world owes me anything. If there's something I want, I will find out what I have to do to get it. And the easiest way usually to find out is to ask to be blunt about it. And like asking hey, what does it take? It's not disrespectful at all, I think. You're a fantastic teacher. Obviously, you've studied it. Do you think you're, you're teaching, you're a credentialed teacher? It sounds like if you're teaching special needs individuals as well, what I find is that a lot of uh, jujitsu instructors or, or people that put out, let's say, uh, instructionals, they may be world champions, but they're not really adept in the art of teaching. Do you think that that served you formal yeah. teaching? Let's talk about teaching in general. You're absolutely right. Being being a good competitor doesn't mean you're a good teacher. Those are two very, very different traits. 
it takes a very different skill set. It takes a very different mindset. And oftentimes those, those don't, do not overlap. There are people who are terrible competitors, but awesome teachers and the other way around. And some, in some rare cases, people that are good at both. I think my teacher training contributed as much as my, my teaching jiu-jitsu contributed to me as a teacher in school. I wouldn't even put it on my, my formal training or, or my university studies. It's more that there is a reason that I decided to become a teacher. I think teaching is something that or teaching is something I enjoy. And with most people that I enjoy, I want to be good at them. So I practice them and I try out stuff and I read about it. I get feedback. I listen to my students. I encourage them to give me feedback on what I do. I question myself a lot with that and try to evaluate the things I do, tweak them, reevaluate. And for me, the thing is, I pretty much enjoy all aspects of jiu-jitsu equally. I enjoy competing, but I also enjoy teaching. And both takes practice. It's interesting too. In the chloride video, I, what I really appreciated was, you know, you're very direct about your teaching and very to the point, very concise. And I, I find that incredibly helpful, but also you're very honest, right? So there's a gentleman that asks you something about the chloride and he's like, uh, what if I do this and that? And what if they turn too much and I land too much sideways or something like that? And, and you're like, well, hey, sometimes the other person moves and it doesn't end up perfect, right? And then you just need to sort of adjust. And so there's that slack. So you're very open about that. The way you communicate that, uh, hey, sometimes things aren't going to work out. You just need to adjust. Yeah. And sometimes I just don't know. Sometimes, especially at Globetrotter camps, people react in a way that I have not seen before. It's it's just a such a big sample group of people, big sample size. Some person might do something weird that none of my training partners ever came up with or that just didn't happen. And I'm, I'm not pretending I know everything. But if you have a question and I can answer it, I will get back to you about it. it. Might take a while. I might have to figure it out. I might have to f- find someone who, who reacts in the way he does. But then my job is to go seek that solution or get feedback feedback from other people. Just ask me, how did you react when it happened? Or how would you react and see and figure it out? So there's kind of a scientific part to some aspects of jiu-jitsu. I certainly don't have all the answers. It's my job to actively seek them. And I would never expect for everything that I teach always to work perfectly. And I done things differently in the past and I would teach things differently today just because of the progress I made and or the adaptions my training partners made and the general meta changing a bit. It's a work in progress. Let's talk about the videos that are released of your videos. They're all pretty straightforward in terms of, okay, claw rides a claw ride, arm drags an arm drag, guillotines, guillotine, leg locks, and arm bars are, are what they are. But then you did this one called controlling dynamics, and it doesn't sound like a very, I don't know, it's it's not as it seems like concrete is like the other ones, but then you watch it and you get so much uh, insight. Can you expand on what that particular class was about and what controlling dynamics even is? Uh, yeah, so there has been a shift in my Globetrotters classes. When I first started, I had to get used to the format. So for that, also, you have to kind of understand how those Globetrotter camps and those classes work. Because those videos are basically just recorded classes. Each instructor gets to teach two, maybe three classes in the week of camp. They're an hour long and there's classes all day. So it's not like you're doing a full training camp with just a handful of instructors and you get back to topics day by day by day. You have those two hours that might be three days apart to bring a punch across. So it's somewhere between a mini seminar and a class you would do. But also it's kind of a tool for all the instructors to put themselves out there to kind of advertise yourself. So I begun seeing those classes as the opportunity for me to basically do something like an image movie or an advertisement for who I am and what I do. So in the beginning, I just went the same way, did something technical just to get used to how I how I do this. And by now, I've been around for a while with Globetrotters. I'm doing classes more and more conceptually, and I'm doing more of more and more and more things that came up that I kind of came up with or that I found my own terminology for. So controlling dynamics. Uh, was one of the first ones I did like that. And it's the idea of how do I actually control a person that doesn't give me grips or wedges to control them? Because also in Globetrotters, especially in that community, through the teachings of someone else who has gotten pretty famous with it, people weren't giving up grips on the upper body easily. So I kind of had to find an answer to that. And um, the answer is, as long as I don't have wedges or grips, all I have is weight. So the structure I can create the most weight on someone with, for me, was a driving tripod. And because they, they are keeping their elbows in and their hands close to their chest, 
or to the neck, I couldn't put the tripod pressure into their chest because it would be too easy for them to off balance and misdirect me. So I started tripoding, driving into people's hips because your elbows are just not long enough to also cover your hip. And that's kind of where that started off. And from there, because I'm coming from basically below the elbows, I can, especially if they try to escape, start attacking inside position on the upper body. That was kind of a turning point in my classes. And it's one half basically of the top control concept that I believe in and that I teach. The one half is the upper body tripods, which are basically all in a north-south vector together with uh, reverse case Katama and north-south. And the other below the hip are rides. I just taught a seven on rides. So it's kind of, that's kind of the two-parter. My way of controlling from the top is tripods and rides. So when you say rides, you mean knee rides? (laughs) I use basically three different rides. Also, I kind of had to come up with my own name. So I use what I call a cross knee ride that is very low. It's basically above the ankle and you control knees and hips. Then I use a knee ride that where I actually put my knee on people's knees, uh, my weight on people's knees and control the hip and start controlling the upper body. And then I used a cross body ride in which I control hips and shoulders. So they are, they are all like one limp apart from each other. And after those, then it's time for the tripods and upper body control. I really implore all of you to watch it. It was one of those aha moments for me watching it. And again, you mentioned like uh, wrestling, right? So you're, this mm-hmm. is, comes down to wrestling again, correct? Yeah, it's, it's basically one of the points where I say wrestling and jiu-jitsu are the same. And one of the reasons I came up with it is because I'm also training with a lot of MMA guys and I'm coaching MMA guys. And there has always been that weird argument between jiu-jitsu and MMA and what is jiu-jitsu for MMA and what is the ideal grappling for MMA? Is it wrestling or jiu-jitsu or whatever? There are things that MMA fighters, because of the urgency of getting up and getting punched in the face, understand way better than jiu-jitsu people. And one of them is not being controlled and not being pinned. The other is not giving up sweeps, not falling over just because someone's breaking your balance. And of course, there's a couple of things that jujitsu guys, if you want to like use those made up extremes, that jujitsu guys understand better than MMA guys. But it's I think if there's a there's a core of grappling done right that applies to both, and then it's just a tactical choice which way to go. There's a lot to learn if you put the jiu-jitsu guys and the MMA guys just on the same mat and work with both and let each other work with both because there's just so much to learn. Oh, the, those MMA guys are fascinatingly hard to sweep. And those jiu-jitsu guys, I, I cannot pass their guard. Why is that? Or they are hard to submit or whatever. And it's just, there's a lot of things to learn in both. And both do a lot of things right, but they also do a lot of things wrong and they even each other up. I love the concepts of bringing in other aspects, wrestling, whatever it may be, MMA into, even though MMA is made up of several different disciplines as well, into a jiu-jitsu, because jiu-jitsu seems to be morphing into this thing, and we'll, and we'll get to that in a bit. But I want to touch back on this. You said you were doing different types of conceptual concepts, this being one of them. What are the other conceptual classes, instructionals, or whatever, or classes that you were uh, referring to or have in mind for the future? I did a class on on the rides and I, I'm still wait, waiting for the video to be edited. I will put that up on my own YouTube channel. I did one on a variation of guard that I kind of invented and came up with. I called the Shacker Guard. It's also on my YouTube channel. And by now, basically, that's something I took actually from being trained as a special education teacher. I always kind of follow two goals with my classes. And it's the same for Globetrotter classes for seminars or for just a regular class at the academy. I have a technical goal for my class and I have kind of a conceptual goal. In special education, we are taught to always have basically two goals for each lesson, for each set of lessons that you follow throughout. The one is referring to your topic and the other is referring to developmental aspects of specific children. And I kind of took that concept and tried to apply it or just apply it to jiu-jitsu in a way that I follow a conceptual idea or goal throughout a class, and I follow a technical aspect. It's weird to grasp without an example. So let's say we're practicing something from mount, and you practice isolating an arm in mount. So you get an underhook, you walk the underhook up and isolate that arm. That's kind of the technique we do. So the technical goal is I want my beginner students to be able to isolate arms from mount when they already have an underhook. That's a technical term. The developmental goal Or the conceptual goal, for example, that I follow with that is the idea of when your opponent peaks and it's in his resistance, you don't peak. You just hold on. As soon as he drops, you go into action and you put up more effort. If we transfer that to the mount example, 
if you start isolating an elbow, they will resist. They will put up a struggle and try to pull their elbow back down towards the hip again. As long as they're doing that, you don't keep on walking. You don't keep on walking your hand, working the underhook up because you probably lose it. And it's strength against strength. You just press your hand into the mat, use it kind of as, a, as an anchor and wait for the resistance to drop again. And then you start walking. They resist again, you hold on. Their resistance dies off, you keep walking again. This also applies to a lot of other situations. It applies to a wrestling scenario. It, it applies to a guard pass. So it's way more overarching, but you have a technique to put it in, to anchor it in your mind. Um, and that's kind of the, the idea that goes through all of my classes. What I love about that is that seems to scale really well because within academies, there's obviously going to be different types of individuals, whether they're like different weights and strength-wise and genders and sizes and that type of approach. If someone can't technically pull something off 100%, I think it helps them quite a bit. Yeah, I think we have to do both. If you only teach conceptually, it's incredibly hard, especially for beginners to follow because you, you kind of translate the concepts into techniques. The technique is, the, is kind of the language that expresses the concepts. If you only teach technique, you just end up with people having a random patchwork of technique that may or may not help them through jiu-jitsu and may or may not make up a full game. But the amalgamation is what does it. So you use techniques. So you, in, in a certain situation, just functionally know what to do but there's concepts that are overarching. And if you anchor them with techniques, people will be able to apply them in, in different scenarios. You just have to have both. And it's possible to teach both kind of side by side. Let's talk about game theory a little bit in your academy. What's unique about game theory? Uh, game theory, we, we started in August of 2019. So in our first two years, we had one and a half year of COVID lockdowns in Germany. Still, we, we made it pretty well. One of the things that's probably unique about game theory is one of our claims is we're breaking hearts, limbs, and traditions, and we take the breaking traditions part very serious. So one of the things we learned, we as individuals that started game theory learned and that always annoyed us in other academies was unquestioned traditions. So we don't do things like the gauntlet when you get promoted because it just doesn't make any sense to us. Also, like there's there's no bowing, there's no calling people names, there's no bowing to dead guys on pictures. All that doesn't really happen. There is a hierarchy, but I think jiu-jitsu should be a meritocracy and it should begin and end on the mat. Like I'm on top of the monkey hill just as long as it's about grappling and I'm, I'm not making grown men that are older than me have steady jobs and a family and whatever bow to me and ask me to go drink water because I think that's that's entirely ridiculous. And I, I wouldn't ask my, my tax guy for that just because he's more competent in doing taxes. So that's probably one aspect. The other is, and I think that's what makes a lot of the vibe in the academy and what people stay for. We take what we do dead serious. We are very serious about jiu-jitsu, mm -hmm. but we don't take ourselves serious at all. We just constantly shit talk each other. We, we crack jokes about everyone. And the, the higher up the hierarchy you are, the, the more shit is being thrown at you. And it's kind of expected. So if you, if you want to stick around and, and stay, it's, <laughs> it, it's expected you just, you just join the pile on us. And it, it attracts a good kind of people. We get the kind of people that, that we want and the, the right people just come in and stay. So that's kind of the social aspects maybe of what makes game theory unique. Mm -hmm. And we constantly force each other to be as up-to-date as possible. But we invite people for seminars a lot. We make sure that it's, it's good people we have over for seminars. We are, with our entire gym culture, very open. So there's no, you cannot train anywhere else or similar stuff. We don't do that. We actively encourage people to go train anywhere. Every Sunday, we have a distinctly open competition class for people from other gyms to come in that has been frequented very well. And in general, we have an open, very direct gym culture, and we just try to keep up with the development of jiu-jitsu as good as we can. I'm curious about your curriculum and how you guys have iterated and developed that, and what does it look like now? And how do you guys, do you guys revisit it from time to time? And, and you mentioned that you guys try to stay abreast of stuff. How, how, does, that, how does that work? Well, the, the thing is we have uh, a, a handful of coaches at Game Theory. So we have gi training and we have our nogi classes. Uh, nogi classes are led by three of us. So uh, one of us, a purple belt, he does a basic class. And then there's uh, me and another black belt who do just regular classes. And uh, we don't have a fixed curriculum. Do you guys uh, come together and have a meeting of teachers and instructors and this is going to be the curriculum or, or is everyone sort of doing their own thing or what? 
it's kind of an in-between. So um, if you just talk about the Nogi training, it's done basically by another black belt, me, and one of our purple belts is doing a basics class once a week. We train together a lot, so we do things similarly, but we have our different sectors of expertise. We all do our own studies, and um, of course, it also reflects in our teaching. So we we kind of speak to each other, like, what are we teaching right now? And um, does that interfere or not? We all have our own styles of teaching, so we don't have a set curriculum. We, we make our own choices, and um, students adapt to that pretty well. They know we do things differently. We may explain them differently, but we also always try to explain why we do things differently. And then it's it's up to the students to somehow figure out, okay, they both have their reasoning. They may come to different conclusions, but if you explain why you do things, if you have an explanation for that, people can make their own choices. So we don't have a written down, evaluated curriculum. Can you tell me about a time that you wanted to quit? No. <laughs> <laughs> I... I <laughs> I never wanted to quit jiu-jitsu. I left teams and I got kicked out of gyms. I wanted to leave teams and gyms, but I never wanted to quit jiu-jitsu. Uh, I never, never, ever did. Even when I like, sucked at competing, I, I had the, the impression that I was never going to be really good at jiu-jitsu. I just loved it. I, I loved it every step of the way. So there's never been a point where I thought about quitting. Like, even when I got injured, I always thought about just getting back to it. So what was your worst injury? I think the worst was a torn meniscus. That's the worst thing I had. I had a couple of minor injuries, like everyone has, like busted fingers, cuts. Mm -hmm. uh, of course, I did MMA too, so I had my fair share of concussions, even though I had wow. the worst concussion I ever had from jiu-jitsu. Yeah, but the, the torn meniscus was probably the, the one that took me out for the longest time because it, it was also a very complicated tear for a meniscal tear. Usually they go by pretty fast, but mine has been soon in three places. And yeah, that kind of took very long for a meniscus, an uncharacteristically long. What's your go-to guard, sweep, or sub? That's a handful of questions in one. So my, my go-to guard, I, I play a, a variation of open guards, butterfly, like butterfly guard, half butterfly, versions of re reverse arriva, and of, and of course my very own shackle guard. I have two favorite sweeps, which is kind of boring too, because they're the most common sweeps in jiu-jitsu. It's a single leg takedown from guard and the um, variations of sumigashi or yoko sumigashi. Those are my go-tos, my favorite ones. I generally use a lot of wrestling up from guard. That's where I end up with single legs and, and headlocks. And you were also asking about the go-to sub, right? I would have said um, heel hook, right? Because in tournament, it's, like you said, it's all heel hook, <laughs> but you're like, this isn't my thing. But no. for some reason, it always ends up like that. Yeah, people think that, but I'm, I'm way more of a guard passer than a leg locker. It's just for, especially back at Purple Belt, people just sucked at heel hooks. <laughs> just ended up heel hooking them. My go-to sub, the most common one is probably variations of the guillotine or in our South Choke by now. The subsets I use most are, I think, guillotines, headlocks, variations of Kimura combined with triangles, and rear naked chokes. What practitioners do you admire? Back in the day, there were also very limited amount of people I could get video of because Fanatics wasn't around and Flow Grappling wasn't, and it was just random stuff you could find. We still handed DVDs back and forth. So one of the first people I, I watched were, was Marcelo Garcia. I guess that's for a lot of people. And then... Maybe the most important one, and that also got me on a direction I'm kind of still following today and, and also influenced the corner of jiu-jitsu I'm, I'm seated in right now, was Gary Tonin. I, mm. I remember seeing Gary Tonin against Cron Gracie at, at ADCC. And ever since then, I've been following that guy around and watched and studied and dissected every video I could find. And then it, from there on, I found the other guys. Of course, I was following uh, Gordon Ryan. Oliver Taza is still someone I really love to watch and also a pretty good teacher. And still those hands Gracie people, I follow them a lot. So you, you actually did travel to New York at one, one point in train, correct? Yeah, true. Very early 2019 in January, I've been to New York and I got my, even got my private with Gary Tonin, kind wow. of an item from my bucket list. Wow. And just visited a lot of friends, not at least also through Globetrotters, but also through seminars and sheer dumb luck. Wow. I myself ended up in, now officially even, in the Hensel Gracie tribe. So I got to visit Silver Fox, who became a friend, got to visit John Callistine in New York. I met at a camp in Belgium, Ryan Quinn. Uh, also from the Hansel Gracie family, Pizza Jitsu on, on Instagram, went and visited him. So I just knew a couple of people in New York and also kind of the, the second tier former Death Squad members. I had Ethan Krenson and Nikki Ryan actually staying at my apartment for a couple of days at one wow. time. Met Oliver Taza a handful of times. So those guys I'm, I, I was kind of close to. It would be a bit much to call us friends, but we are like acquaintances maybe. Yeah. 
That's much closer than most of us. Kudos to you. Sven, how do you see the future of jiu-jitsu going? Where do you see it going? I think there's more and more going to be a divide between gi and no gi. Or, yeah, gi and no gi or IBJJF, non-IBJJF, which I think is kind of natural and I'm, I don't dislike the idea. I think they are very separate and that becomes just more and more apparent. That doesn't mean that you have to be on bad terms to go your own ways. Other than that, we've probably seen the most exciting times in jiu-jitsu in the last like five years. It's grown exponentially. People know about jiu-jitsu. I can only kind of judge for the part of jiu-jitsu that I'm seeing, which is European and German, and it has grown exponentially throughout the last couple of years. The level has grown exponentially. European jiu-jitsu is getting better and better. We can be competitive internationally. So I think the future for jiu-jitsu is bright. I just hope it never becomes Olympic. Yeah, I agree. Wow, that's a really great point, actually. Yeah, that's the only bad idea on our horizon is, is jiu-jitsu becoming Olympic. Can you expand on the re your reasoning why? I think one of the problems we had in jiu-jitsu, especially with the IBJJF, is a bunch of old people that are not in it for the sport, but for, for the influence on it and, and for the money they can make of it. And uh, the Olympics is just an exponential example of that. And I don't like what they did to judo or what the Olympic process did to judo. It made it less and less interesting. Of course, there would be a bit more of attention and, and a bit more money and I'm not convinced that that's a worthy trade. There again, I can only I can only judge for especially the the German or European setting I'm seeing, and I do not see judo clubs and and wrestling clubs overrun with members because it's Olympic. We have way more people in jiu-jitsu schools than they have in in judo or wrestling clubs, so I don't really see the benefit. I mean, it's some prestige, yeah, but. Um, it will probably not attract a whole lot of spectators because for the uninitiated, jiu-jitsu is just way too hard to watch. It doesn't really have the potential of a spectator sport. I mean, a pin, you can at least kind of understand, even if you don't know the intricacies of wrestling. But jiu-jitsu, and especially in the gi, you can hardly watch it if you don't do it yourself or if you don't have some level of competence in it. So I don't really see any be any benefits from it, but I, I see a, a few problems. What are your future goals and, and what do you see like on the horizon for yourself? Future goals competitively for sure is AECC trials. I just missed the last ones because I just job wise, I, I couldn't prepare the way I would like to prepare for ADCC trials. And then the day after they went down, I instantly hated me for that choice. So I'm doing everything in my power to get to the next ones. Other than that, is keep on working at game theory and let that grow because I really believe in the idea of our gym and our academy. And uh, jujitsu and life wise, I want to be able to work as a teacher part time and be able to provide to the full-time salary through jiu-jitsu. That would be awesome because I could just take time off and, and also put that into jiu-jitsu. Sven, can you expand a bit more about your background and your journey in terms of all these belts and these diff different martial art disciplines? I took a weird path through martial arts. So I started doing Luta Livre in the school where no one got promoted. There weren't really any belts around. We just grappled. Then switched teams and got into a team where people got promoted. So my first belt ever in Luta Livre was a purple belt because I had been training for a while. And the first thing was a, a purple belt and I kind of jumped the blue belt. And then just randomly a seminar I did in the gi. I was wearing my white belt to kind of be respectful. I wouldn't do that anymore now, but I thought that was the appropriate thing to do. And the person doing the seminar got a bit weirded out that this white belt was pretty good at jiu-jitsu and i told him my story and he gave me a blue belt so i was at one point a, a purple belt in luta livre and a blue belt in, in jiu-jitsu and then i got promoted in luta livre further by the same the same person got my brown and eventually my black belt and at some point by and through jiu-jitsu globetrotters i got my purple belt in jiu-jitsu from christian graugart just because the purple belt wasn't really appropriate and that's something that was another big game changer also through globetrotters i met aaron milan who is a john danaher black belt old acquaintance training partner friend of silver fox and we got in contact and became friends also with another one of out of that triumvirate is Jeffrey Knight and another one of the old guard Henzo black belts and I asked Aaron to be my mentor 
and also promote me in the future. And he agreed to that. Yeah, then kind of the, the pandemic struck and I haven't seen Aaron in, I think, one and a half year, even more, maybe approaching two years. I haven't met him in person. Yeah, and I always had to kind of explain why, on the one hand, I'm, I'm a black belt and an instructor with the Globetrotters, and, but it also said I was a purple belt in Jiu-Jitsu and it, it was kind of weird. And by the time I also started, whenever I wear a gi, I wear a black belt because I think it's kind of pretentious to not do that. So it's it's been up and down and weird. And um, at the last Globetrotter camp I've been to, Jeffrey Knight, on Aaron's behalf, promoted me to brown belt formally. So now I'm formally a, a Hensel Gracie Jiu-Jitsu brown belt. And uh, sooner or later, I'm going to meet Aaron again. And let's say it's at least pretty openly communicated that the brown belt is just a placeholder to not jump belts in the promotion history again. So it's it's kind of weird. And personally, I didn't ever care about it too much. It's more about closing a chapter because I'm not using the Luta Livre label for what I do. I call what I do jiu-jitsu and mm-hmm. our school is called Game Theory Jiu-Jitsu. So it's kind of closing a chapter. That's what I want. And also, and that's very important to me, I don't want my students to have to answer any weird questions. Like anyone who wants can question my legitimacy mm-hmm. and call me a non-black belt in jiu-jitsu or whatever. And I can answer for myself. And worst case, just watch me teach or grab me for a role and mm-hmm. see for yourself if it fits or not. But I don't want my students and especially those I promoted to have to answer any weird questions. Like, yeah, why is your instructor not a real black belt and all that? I can fight for myself, but I don't want them to have to. So mm-hmm. that's kind of why I want to close that chapter too. And also by being adopted into the Hanzo tribe, it kind of puts me very close to the people I've been following and learning from anyway. So it feels like the right way kind of weird that by never really caring about affiliations and coaches and and all that somehow i ended up in the exact spot i I would but that's ideal for me and that i couldn't have dreamt of a better place to end up in by just not caring about it at all i'm i'm kind of proud that i never had to hug anyone's nuts for a belt this isn't entirely out of sorts i've met several very prominent jujitsu personalities and teachers, etc., that have taken these circuitous kind of paths to upper belts because of just circumstance, right? Geographic, it may be, perhaps there isn't a black belt within the community and they have these people, you know, coming in doing seminars and and they're like, what's your situation? And then promotions may or may not occur, whatever. So sometimes it's just circumstance, right? Yeah, sometimes it's just circumstance, of course. And um, in my case, the scene in Germany wasn't that big and there was... Mm -hmm. There was no one around. I was very good at technically finding my own way and developing my, my jiu-jitsu by, by seminars and self-learning and instructionals and training partners. So I never felt that I really needed someone to be my coach in that way. And I didn't want to be promoted by someone just to be promoted. And up until I met Aaron, I felt like, okay, I'm probably not going to be promoted any further because there's no one that has a significance to me that makes me want to be promoted by them. And Aaron kind of changed that. Then afterwards, I met Silver Fox and and Jeffrey. And those three are like the the only people I I met that I felt like, okay, from them, it actually means something to me. That's why I do it. And that's why I stick with them. And other than that, it's just, I don't want it to only be a technicality. If I get promoted and if I ask someone to kind of adopt me, it should be someone that has some significance to me. I want to be respectful of your time. And, and one of the things I want to say, too, is, is to please keep sharing your knowledge and information and your highly effective teaching and videos to what now is the global community, right? We're all gaining insight from it. And I think it, it provides huge value for people, regardless of, of wherever they're starting from. This is really important for the community in terms of global growth. We really appreciate everything that you've done for the community. Thank you so much. Thank you. Sven, where can we get more information about you? Uh, yeah, so if, if you want, you can, of course, follow Game Theory Jiu-Jitsu, especially on Instagram. It's at Game Theory Jiu-Jitsu, just all one. You can follow me. It's kind of, it's an amalgamation of me as a private person and me as a weird Jiu-Jitsu guy. Also on Instagram at Sven underscore Nogi underscore JJ. And um, I have a lazily curated own Jiu-Jitsu channel that's called The Handsome General uh, because that's one of my adopted names. It's The Handsome General on YouTube. I put my Shekhar class on there. I know I'm kind of lazy with it, but it, I will in the future put up more content on that one. Okay, so we'll have an entirely part two episode on the Handsome General and explaining what that's all about. But in the meantime, <laughs> everyone, thanks so much for watching and listening to the show. Remember, Forever White Belt, I am Adolfo Ferranda, your host. Search us on all the socials, Forever White Belt, and we are there. Please give us a five-star thumbs up and the whole thing. Subscribe. Tell your friends. Please share the episode. It helps us out a lot. And Sven, again, thank you so much for your time. I can't thank you enough. Thank you.